lots and lots of spoilers. The whole world is a movie if you look at it the right way. Every time your shoes stick to the floor, every time you get popcorn in your hair and feel not disgusted, but a sense of wonder, of whimsy, of, of magic. Every time a jujube plops in your soda, if you just stop and think, I'm in a theater, and this Green Lantern movie is fantastic. Every time that happens, then you are a part of Max Mike Movies. We're closing in on the end of our series on whitewashing, that annoyingly persistent habit of Hollywood casting white actors in decidedly non-white roles because whiteness. This week, another little-known film, 1964's George Pal epic, The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, or Lo, or Lou, take your pick. The movie certainly does. <clears throat> We've covered other Pal movies, most notably The Time Machine on this show, but will this one prove itself a little-loved classic, or just another time when Asian people were made fun of poorly? Ah, uh, but that would be telling. Your hosts are the fortunate favored Max Levine, as played this week by Tony Randall. Say hello, Felix. Oscar, Oscar, Oscar. <laughs> and Did by I the mention it's not spaghetti, it's linguini. <laughs> and by the lunally lucky Mike Luce, also played by Tony Randall. Even Bumpy the Wonder Pony is played this week by Tony Randall. But you know who isn't? You! And you answered this week's poll question, which was, when going to the actual theater, snacks or no snacks, booze or no booze, pee break or hold it. We got the following answers, all of which qualify for the Bumpy Hut Chest of Values. Ooh, Chest of Values. First up is Vince, our Canadian correspondent who offers, quote, You can see movies in an actual theater? This is a thing people do. He didn't say that. On what planet does this happen? I don't like to eat during a movie. If you can't wait two hours for a snack, you have a problem. I used to drink booze every time when I was younger because I drank all the time, so why stop? I am past the age where I can wait for a pee break. End quote. Vince, you will always be young enough to hold it in our hearts. Or something. Uh... <laughs> Problematic, is it? <laughs> Lauren, who treasures her bumpy bucks, gives us, quote, I definitely get snacks every time I go to the movies. When I was a kid, my parents would always say, we're here to watch a movie, not eat snacks. Once I started going by myself, I treated myself to popcorn every time. When I took my kids, they got popcorn, which we shared, and each of them got to choose a candy item as well. Let's face it, my rebellion against my parents was pretty lame. <laughs> as, for the, as for the rest, no to alcohol and mid-movie bathroom breaks, except when my daughter was too young to go by herself and she started to do the potty dance. Thanks, Lauren. Val, who is totally my sister for purposes of this show, says, quote, depends on the length of the movie and the time I'm seeing it. I try not to leave during a movie, but if it's an epic, I won't make it without a loo trip. As for snacks, if dinner is involved before or after, no snacks. If it's a matinee, snacks and no booze. Not even when I saw cats, <laughs> just not a preferred pairing for me, end quote. Wow, cats without <laughs> booze. Val, you are a trooper. <laughs> Our buddy Brian commented, snacks, preferably sweet, nothing too light. It sounds like it's, uh, I think we're doing uh, Joe Friday. Snacks, preferably sweet, nothing Two, too light. Two, three days old. <laughs> Booze, but not too much or else that goes into the third answer. 
Hold it. Can't miss parts of the movie you just paid $102 to see. End quote. <laughs> wow. Brian only sees the best, most expensive that Hollywood has to offer. Hollywood, yeah, thanks sure. you, Brian, and so do we. Lastly is the weasel who gives us, quote, lots of variables here. Always popcorn. Sometimes a large to share, sometimes a personal to not overindulge. Usually soda, because it keeps him awake and ca caffeinated, as I know that means he means me. Uh, the weasel does tend to fall asleep during movies. Booze beer is really dependent on the occasion. Sometimes I'll get beer, but then I run the risk of falling asleep. I try to avoid the bathroom during the movie at all costs. I hate missing plot. End quote. I didn't ask him what all costs meant, and I'm kind of glad I did. But I can attest to the fact that the weasel that weasels are indeed sleepy in the dark, the moist environment of the movies. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, as always, all folks who answer the poll question get mentioned on the show, as we just did, and get a huge batch of freshly baked Bumpy Bucks added to their accounts, usable for anything in the sleek, exclusive Bumpy Hut catalog. Four to five guys surveyed. They'd recommend Bumpy Bucks for their patients who chew ponies. <laughs> Nobody chews ponies. Get, give me half a chance. <laughs> I'll give you half a kick. Um, look for life-size Max and my cuddle pillows in the next issue coming never. Wait, wait what? It's in the Bumpy Head catalog. Um, you, you signed a contract, Max. Uh, we'll, we'll talk later, so it's fine. Wait a minute. They'll sell like, was, they'll sell like that, cakes. That, was that why you had a webcam in my bedroom? Nothing, nothing, nothing. So, Max, want to answer this week's triple threat? The snack or no snack, the booze or no booze, and the pee or no pee. Well, snacks... Usually I go to a movie before, right before or after a meal, so I, I usually don't go for snacks. I also am sort of opposed, as Rita Rudner pointed out, I don't want to pay, you know, $5 for popcorn. Popcorn, quote, costs 15 cents a silo. <laughs> but I, I, understand, I understand the urge. I just don't do it. It's the same reason I don't, uh, I don't like to get drinks. I, I don't, don't want a soda because of actually part three of the question. I really would rather not take a bathroom break. Uh, during a movie, but as we get older, it becomes less less avoidable. Booze, mm, I don't think I ever have. And not even for I, cats. Not even for cats, because <laughs> I, I, I think that would have just made me sit there and cry. <laughs> I, I'm to, I'm told you're supposed to go on something more powerful, but I think that would have made my head explode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't no. tend to get snacks. Uh, if it's a weird thing where it's like I'm rushing right from work to a movie and I haven't had a chance for dinner, I will try some things that they offer. Um, one I tried that I'm glad wasn't better than it was, was deep fried macaroni and cheese bites because Ooh. the thought, I know, the thought of those is like, well, it's a heart attack in every chew. Um, <laughs> And thankfully, they were good, but not great. And I'm glad, because otherwise I would have been addicted to those. Um, I have had um, movie theater pizza, which is fine. It's not mm -hmm. going to win any prizes, but it's fine. Um, but I don't generally like snacks. Um, I'm not a po I hate popcorn, actually. I don't like popcorn at all. Oh, really? Yeah. I hate the way it squeaks. Um, mm, okay. I sometimes get a drink if I'm thirsty. Uh, Green Lantern, which I mentioned, definitely had a very large Long Island iced tea, and unfortunately, it wasn't large enough because I still there, remember the movie. There isn't enough iced tea, Long Island iced tea in the world. And, uh, I, yeah. I would just like to take this opportunity to uh, talk about one of my pet peeves. And this is a thing I don't. I think it's uh, stopped spreading, like you know, like a canker sore. But mm. I know some places still have it, and that is dine-in theaters. Oh. Yes, I've been to a couple of these. 
And in, in theory, the idea is kind of neat. The seats are bigger, you get these swing-out tables, you order actual food that ushers bring you on plates with silverware and napkins and condiments. So you can actually have a meal. On the surface, that sounds fine if you're the only one in the theater. <laughs> because otherwise, it is an entire movie's worth of clinking silverware, <laughs> plates banging, people spilling things, people a saying, man Wait, selling ice cream. <laughs> exactly. So uh, take a stand, people. We can stamp this out. Do you have a little button on your chair that uh, calls forth for an usher to peel you a grape? <laughs> yes, it, yes, you actually do have a little thingy that lights up. That's the other problem. It lights up a little blue light by your seat to summon mm. the usher, which means these little lights are going off all over the theater. Yeah, I'm gonna, I haven't been to one of those. Uh, I know there have been in theaters that do it, but it was only the back row. Ah, uh, well, so that's not so bad. Although the clinking and clattering would probably... Could you imagine seeing something like, oh, I don't know, um, Contact or um, the Blair Witch Project, and it's oh. like the most tense moment and suddenly click, clatter, clatter, burp. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn, same. I spilled! <laughs> not the same experience. Uh, no. uh, as for the last part I didn't get to answer, I, too, try to avoid the pee break if possible. Uh, if the film's not that good... I'll be like, whatever, maybe, maybe it'll go faster. Um, there was one movie I saw where there was an unpleasantness coming up and I knew it was coming and it's like, I don't want to see this. So it's like, I'll go hmm. pee. Hmm. Uh, but yeah. So thanks again for everybody answering our, our, uh, question. We have a new one for this week. What is it? That question is who is the biggest star you've ever met in person? This would be some major actor you actually spoke to, had a conversation with, or even got a weekend invitation from. Let us know. We oh. have to know. So but, this is uh, actually met, not... Not like, saw no, off or down the street. Okay, not because, like, my, my sister met them, so it counts that I met them by the no. transitive property. No. That would I think be that's a, grossly unfair. That may be, but I don't care. I only want to care who you actually met and spoke <sighs> to. Uh, and we will tell you how to respond to our poll question, as we usually do at the end of the show. But we also have to know, we have to know... Is all about the trivia from The Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe, or Lau, or Lou, as in I have to go to. The... How about just we call him Dr. Bob? <laughs> trivia! The show. Budget. No idea. Nobody wanted to tell me. The take. $1.25 million, which might sound a lot for 1964, mm. but the film more or less bombed. It would be another four years before George Powell would make another movie, and this was the last time he'd actually be in the director's chair. Mm. This film won an actual Academy Award. I thought makeup. it was just nominated. Nope. It won for makeup effects. But to be fair... The makeup effects were pretty good. I actually yeah. was surprised. This point in time, there wasn't an actual Oscar for makeup. That wouldn't come until 1982, so this was an honorary award. Oh, but, okay. That means it's only two-thirds the height. <laughs> and and uh, didn't Ray Harryhausen do the special effects? No. It was a man named oh. Jim Danforth, and Jim Danforth has done a lot of stop-motion stuff in a lot of different films. Um, for no reason whatsoever... Tony Randall, the star of Dr. Lau. I'm going to stick with Lau because that's what it looks like. I know it's pronounced yeah. all three ways in the movie, but whatever. Uh, he appears as himself without makeup in a shot of the audience in one of the fantasy circus, circus performances. No idea yeah. why. He's yeah, just I there. about that. He doesn't talk. He doesn't do anything. It's just, oh, look, Tony Randall. Eh. 
There's a Flintstones cameo in this movie. <laughs> One of three wind-up toys shown is quite obviously a Fred. Mm-hmm. So if that doesn't take you out of the movie, oh, there's kind of an anachronism because this is clearly supposed to be around the turn of the century. Yeah, like sorry, the turn of the twentieth century. I have to say that now. Yeah. Hey, what? Hey. <laughs> okay. Yeah. A visualization of the fall of the city, as seen by the audience during the last performance of the circus, is made up of footage from other George Pell movies, including The Time Machine and Atlantis, The Lost Continent, a film I've actually never seen. I didn't even know. No, about I haven't either. Riding high before the reviews came in, George Powell was planning a sequel to be called The Eighth Face of Dr. Lau, I guess. Okay, I made that up. But he was actually planning to do a, a sequel with Tony Randall to come back. Why? Don't know. There is a Wizard of Oz cameo in this movie. The witch's hourglass is seen hanging randomly in the circus tent of Dr. Lowe. I saw wow. that. I spotted that. Me too. Well, it's it's pretty prominent, but it yeah, was just I mean, like, right in, I thought that was lost. Face. I thought they broke it, but nope, there it is. Liar, liar, pants on fire. There's only six faces as portrayed by Tony Randall. The Yeti was actually performed by George Pal's son. Well, that ruins the movie. Yeah, totally. Poor Eddie Little Sky. He plays a character named George C. George, oh. an actual Native American. This wouldn't be his last stereotype role. He'd go on to play Witch Doctors on three episodes of Gilligan's Island. <laughs> oh! Yeah. Pulusi Bagumba. Uh, indeed. The, indeed. The final quote of this movie was immortalized on the plaque that Joel Robinson, played by Joel Hodgson, left behind on the satellite of love when he escaped in a pod that was disguised as a box of hamdingers. He claimed it was his favorite movie. I only hope that that was just the character and not Joel himself, but one will never know. Max, do you know any other trivia about the seven faces of Dr. Lau? Uh, oh, I do know that they shaved Tony Randall's head for this movie, but when they wanted to shoot him in the uh, audience, that came later, and they tried to glue his hair back on. And it was it a woman's work, wig. And they finally used a wig. And it, and it was a woman's wig, because none of the men's wigs fit him or, or matched his hair close enough. The glue hair thing was actually true. What happened was they wanted to have the press there for when they actually shaved it, and they were a little late, so the barber glued some hair back on and reshaved it. Because Tony Randall getting his head shaved. Wow, front page that one. Big scoop. Right. So let's get to the plot. This is Mm. a little long because it's weird. Okay. Dr. Lau, an old... Chinese gentleman comes riding into an old western town on the back of a gold donkey with a fishbowl perched on the saddle. Finding the newspaper office, he asks to see the manager but has to wait while an altercation goes on between said manager and the local land baron. Seems he's trying to buy up all the land in town by way of supposedly doing the inhabitants a favor as their town is likely soon to dry up and blow away. The manager, Ed Cunningham, thinks there's something more than fishy than with money-grubbing Clint Stark, no relation to Tony, and won't stop till he gets to the bottom of things. When given a moment, Dr. Lau asks for an ad to be run in the paper promoting his circus, which is or has coming or uh, come to town thing. He pays in advance. Meanwhile, the town librarian, a widow because we haven't seen that before, <laughs> is trying to raise her son on her own. Ed no, Cunningham, her, name, her name is not Marion, by the way. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Ed Cunningham has his eye on Marion, I mean Angela, as paid, played by I Dream of Jeannie's Barbara Eden, but she isn't having any of it, and she wants to stay true to the spirit of her dead husband. Plots thicken as a town meeting is called to decide whether or not to take Mr. Stark's generous offer of buying everyone out. 
Stark makes a nice speech about how he's trying to help people, but Cunningham tries to make a plea to the townsfolk that there's more to life than money and that it's their community that's worth so much. Oh, and uh, Stark is a dirty, rotten liar. <clears throat> or something. Meanwhile, out of nowhere, Dr. Lau has indeed erected a big top of sorts, and the townsfolk come out to see what's what. A yeti is glimpsed rousting about, and inside the tent are all sorts of odd attractions, such as the actual real-life Medusa, Apollonius of Tyra, the prognosticator who only speaks the truth, Pan, the totally-from-mythology Pan who incites... <laughs> hot flashes in young ladies, and the serpent, which doesn't at all look like a hand puppet with Clint Stark's face on it. People learn truths about themselves, learn to look at things a different way, and then come back the next night for more of the same. Will the town be saved? Is there a deep, dark secret that Clint Stark isn't telling people? And what the heck is with that goldfish bowl? Only Dr. Lau knows, and the end. The Lowdown. So, sure. Okay. All I knew about this was Tony Randall's in it seven times, and there, he did all these different things. When the film starts, my first question was, "Wait, this is a western?" Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Was not how about the name of that western town, Abalone? Well, well they I, just said Abalone, they say Abalone, but, <laughs> but it's spelled Abalone, which is a shellfish. Yeah. I and only I, I figured it had to be a play on the town Abilene, Texas. Oh. Okay. Sure. But the best thing is we know exactly where this film is going just from the theme because it's Western music mixed with fake Chinese yep. letting us know we are in for a rough, rough ride. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It's like that. At um, one point he does in fact bang a gong. Yeah, and and or Wang Chung, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, he he gets it on and bangs a gong. Yep. You may have uh, may have noticed there's an early uh, credit in there that it tells us this is based on the novel. Mm. Oh boy, yeah. Um, so I checked into the novel because I'd never heard of that either. And the uh, novel's called The Circus of Doctor Lao. Yes, that is correct. And it came out in the 30s, and it actually won an award for best new book or something of ni- in 1933 or whenever it came huh. out. Uh, the beginning of the book and the movie are quite similar. The ending is um yeah not and in here we actually have to give george pal some credit um quoting from wikipedia quote the tale ends with the town becoming the site of a ritual to a pagan god whimsically given the name yatl possibly an allusion to the mesoamerican god yautl whose name means the enemy the ritual ends when the god himself slays a virgin her unrequited lover and his own priest what? The circus over, the townsfolk scatter to the winds. Apparently, few of them profit from the surreal experiences. End quote. I'm going to go with oh, yikes. <laughs> okay. So it kind of undercuts the whole Dr. Lau is a good guy. Well, I, I don't know if, yeah, if Lau makes it out of the film either. Um, they didn't say, and I don't want to read it to find out. Uh, it was illustrated, and um, the illustrations are kind of nightmare-inducing, too, so... Yeah, uh, check out that book, ladies and gen- gentlemen. I, I do um, have to say one thing in the credits, uh, which is, I think, now one of my favorite credits. Hmm? They had an advisor of magic. <laughs> they had an advisor of magic, and that was Mr. George Boston. Ah, Mr. Famous Boston. advisor of magic. Yes. That's actually one of my favorite credits since... Cheerios by General Mills. <laughs> you know what film that was in? No. That was the 1978 Superman movie. 
Wait, there were Cheerios in that movie? Apparently. I don't and, remember. And okay. they were by General Mills. <laughs> Make, maker of Bumpios, the cereal that gets you going in the morning. Yeah. Ah, your your <laughs> going pony to the bathroom. stays soggy in milk. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So Tony Randall, we get to see him real quick as Dr. Lau. And he's about as subtle as explosive diarrhea. Um, I got to say this. Okay, it is incredibly offensive that they had cast this whiter than white guy Mm. as a Chinese man. But I kind of like the way he plays with with his, his voice and how he speaks. Because he goes through... Sometimes he speaks like Tony Randall, very erudite, a lot of big words. And then other times he's basically, no ticky, no shirty. And he's really? clearly playing with people's uh, expectations of the stereotype. Yes, I was expecting an actor to do a good acting job, and my expectations were totally broken. Yeah. Um, my my one note about that was, besides the fact is, why is he doing this, is Randall's French and Scottish accents are actually worse than his Chinese. That is true. His Scottish <laughs> accent is just... I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay, is he trying to do Welsh? Hungarian? I'm not sure. It's, and the only way you could tell is they're actually playing bagpipes in the background. Yeah, because we wouldn't know. Yeah. Was. Um, I, I didn't care for that because it took me right out of the film. It's like, yeah. are we supposed it's to believe jarring. he's this? It's weird because it's like suddenly he just isn't doing that pigeon English thing badly um, because he's, it's, it's about, he doesn't actually say no ticky, no shirty, but he but might he, as well. He does say, excuse prees. Yes, he, he he mixed, well, no, he R's his L's, but he doesn't L his R's. Oh, he does once or twice very intentionally when he says, what is plobrem? Yeah, but it looks like he's struggling with it too. Um, it's, yeah. On the other hand, as I mentioned, we have uh, poor Eddie Little Sky, who is an actual Native American. Yeah. And you can playing. tell that the director said, no matter what happens, you're not allowed to say a single word. Yeah, because... no dialogue and no change of facial expression. No. And yeah, Eddie Little Sky, if you look, has played so many, well, he is Native American, but he yeah. has played so many Native American bit parts in movies and TV. Is He's got a very long list of credits. Yeah. And it's a shame because I was kind of thinking, hey, he and Dr. Lowe have kind of this weird understanding going on. Yeah. It'd be much more, it would have been interesting to see more interaction with him but poor, poor George C. George, because that's it's just a plot name. device. He's just a point. He's used as basically a visual prop yeah. by Mister by Ned Cunningham, brother to Richie, who uh, is <laughs> was is the uh, crusading newspaper editor who's trying to stop the evil Mister Stark. And boy, could they have found anybody who looked more like a square jawed hero of the West than that guy? Because beef slab pile. Yep. I, He's like out John Garfielding John Garfield because he's just there's a, he's an adequate actor. I don't have anything for or against him. He's okay, but dear gods, he looks like an arrow collar shirt ad, which you have to look that up because nobody knows what that is. Yeah. Um, he, he, I mean, he he is the guy that will come and get Snidely Whiplash off your maiden from uh, yeah. you know, from tying her to the railroad tracks. That's yeah. exactly maybe one of the um, the Dover boys. He looks yeah, like a yeah, Dover boy. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Possibly Tom and Dick, Pop, but not Larry. No, not Larry. <laughs> but uh, even when they when Howard when Stark, I thought it was Horace Stark. It's Clint Stark. Clint Stark. 
When Stark and Cunningham meet, it's like, how do you do? I'm the bad guy. Hello, I'm the crusading good guy. Hi. Hi. <laughs> well, even better, we're sure that Clint Stark is the bad guy because he pulls out his actual black hat. <laughs> yes, he actually wears a black hat. Now, they try. I got to give it credit. They try to make him a little more... He's not just a two-dimensional, I want to own everything, I am evil. He's a, he's a disillusioned optimist. You're and we know this would... because he tells us. He <laughs> literally... He's not just simply, I want all the ham. <laughs> yes, he is not simply <laughs> trying to be a ham hoarder. Yeah. He actually explains to us very plainly, yes, I used to believe in the good in man, and now I don't anymore. That's why I'm such a jerk. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really tell us why. Oh, I saw too many things. Yeah, there's really no here in there's Avalon? no subtlety. <laughs> no. I mean, it's nice, and he actually, as doesn't generally happen in films with a capital V villain, he does come about in the end. Which, he has a redemption arc. Yeah, doesn't make yeah. a lot of sense, but it, it does happen. No. Well, he sees the he sees the movie within the movie and goes, wow, I don't want to be stuck in that film, so I guess I should be a good guy now. I, I want to ask you, there's a line right in the opening, which kind of puzzled me. Mm. It's right in the opening scene when Dr. Lowe rides into town and there are the three cowboy comedy relief stereotypes. Oh, the coot squad? Yeah, yeah the, that's good. The coot squad. <laughs> yeah, they, they so wanted Walter Brennan and Andy Devine, but they clearly couldn't get them. No. Uh, one of them, they're, they're talking about, what do you I think he's Japanese. No, he's Chinese. How do you know that? Because I ain't stupid. What? Yeah. I, huh? I, I didn't get that at all. Is that, I, I was like, oh, wow, is this going to be like, it turns out they're not this bunch of stupid old codgers. They're actually very clever, or one of them is really educated, and nope. <laughs> nope, they there really are, are exactly like they seem. I just don't understand that because I ain't stupid. There are weird, vague attempts at addressing social interracial issues i think that's actually one of them he's actually saying only idiots can't tell people of different nationalities apart which is nice but as you point out it literally goes nowhere because right after that they're spitting in the spittoons and look out for the pony holes it's it's you know cootisms all over again and that's all they do it's like they just show up places and coot which is now a verb by the way, uh, speaking of Barbara Eden as uh, Angela, the librarian, there's a line in there that, I think it's not that it hasn't aged well, but its meaning has somewhat changed. You know, she's basically a clone of um, the character from uh, Mary the Librarian from uh, Music Man in that she runs the library, yeah. she has one, a young son, a dead husband, and lives with her mother-in-law. Yep. <laughs> and the mother-in-law whose name, we don't even get a name for her. It's I assume terrible. her, Mrs. she was also Mrs. Cunningham. She does say her name, and I can't remember what oh. it is, but she mostly just calls her mother. Or Mrs., no, she calls her Mrs. something, but I think, I want to say her name is Sarah. It really oh, does not okay. matter. She does nothing. But she, she's talking, oddly enough, she wants Angela to get married again. It's a little unusual in a situation like that. Hi, forget about my dead son. Go get married, because, <laughs> you know, your son needs a father. And she says, no, it's all right. After all, Mike has two mothers. Oh. So in today, in that context back there, it's perfectly innocent. In, yeah. In 2021, it's like, okay. Um, 
I don't think that's what yeah, they meant. I know that's not what they meant, but it would be jarring for com- contemporary audiences. Because otherwise the couple would be basically Genie and Aunt B. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I don't. I mean, it could happen, but no, no. Yeah. Um, yeah, my actually one of my notes was this film is kind of like the Music Man meets Something Wicked This Way Comes, but with <laughs> less singing. Yeah, um, yeah. If you haven't seen Something Wicked This Way Comes, it was not a huge hit when it came out. Um, it stars Jason Robards uh, in a very good role, and it also has Jonathan Price in an excellent role as yeah. Mr. Dark. It's a it's an it's based on a um, uh, oh, Great Bradbury novel. Great, yeah, thank you. Um, and it's, it's a neat film. I really like it. It feels very much like Ray Bradbury and the Twilight Zone. And I think actually Ray Bradbury, they did one of his stories in Twilight Zone, but that's a film worth looking up. But I mean, this Marion thing is exactly the same. And this is a town you're looking at it going, huh, you got a library. And, um, what are you going to do with that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, they use it to hold meetings. Yeah. But it's like at least in um, what's the Wells Fargo wagons coming to it's River music, City, man. River City, yeah, River City, yeah. River City is a pretty big ta- town, like true. it's a city. That's true. This this for some inexplicable reason is sixteen miles from the nearest water supply. Yeah, yeah. Why do you put a town sixteen miles from a water supply? Um, I went to Wikipedia to find the answer, and the answer is you don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the big deal is apparently water is going to dry up and, um, well, they, it's piped in from someplace and the pipe right. is decaying. Right. They have 16 miles somehow in like, I'm guessing it's at least the teens cause we see cars. Yeah. Um, so we'll assume it's the teens. Um, and in the teens, somehow they have 16 miles of pipe going from this one water supply to this rinky dink town that is nowhere near anything, which spoiler, apparently the railroad is going to be coming to, which yeah. is the secret that Clint Stark knows and why he wants to buy up the town because suddenly it's going to go from nowhere to Cheeseville or something. I don't know. Um, uh, get, getting back to Angela Librarian and Ned the Crusader. I gotta say, I know it's supposed Ed. to be charming and romantic, but Ned, it comes off kind of like a stalker. Ed. Ed. Oh, no, no, she calls him Ned. Ed. Ed Cunningham. I checked it out. It's Ed Cunningham. Okay. You can call him Ned if you want. <laughs> I'm sure Ned you is won't a nickname mind. for Edward. Um, I, now here's the thing. I, I guess I saw in the credits she was in the film and I just forgot it. When you saw her at first, did you recognize Barbara Eden? I really didn't. Me either. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, because, you know, she was always played genie as a blonde, and uh, she thinks she stayed blonde after that role. Yep, she But still in this, is. she's got brown hair, and it really completely changes her look. She also isn't playing that ditzy, sort of high-energy character. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until halfway through the film where we start getting some close-ups. It's like, wait, that's right, Barbara Eden's... Did they switch actresses halfway through the <laughs> films? Because now I recognize her, but I just didn't. Um, which, hey, let's give her some credit. Show she has some range. That's yeah. nice. So, do you see we had a couple of old uh, favorites in here, too? We had Rocky Rockford, the father from the Rockford Files. He That's who the- that was. He was the uh, guy who ran the press, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, Rock- and of course, we got Sam Drucker as the mayor. <laughs> we did get Mr. Drucker playing. Hey there, Mr. Douglas. <laughs> basically, um, Mr. Drucker, because uh, that's what he does. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Rocky, he's been in tons of things. You might remember him from uh, Rocket Ship XM on Mystery Science, where he's one of goes oh, on and on yep. about Texas yep. and Texas and Texas. Uh, 
yeah, so this is a uh, and you know Tony Randall is best known, although he's been in tons and tons of things. He's best Lots known for stuff. playing Felix Unger on The Odd Couple. Um, not best and known doing for playing... Heinz ketchup commercials. Sure, he's not best known for being a hand puppet or a hairy chested Medusa. Did you catch that? What? So he's the hairy Medusa. Ch- but he's wearing oh. this low-cut thing, and I don't know if they just decided not to shave Tony Randall's chest oh. or what, but there's hair coming out of the Ooh. dress, okay. which is kind of weird. Um, yeah. Or Pan. That was interesting, because Pan, he plays Pan for a minute, and then suddenly Pan takes on the visage of Ed Cunningham, because yeah. the only person who meets Pan is Angela, the librarian. And, of course, I guess Pan incites... Um, sexual desire in her? Well, yeah, he does. I mean, in Greek mythology, first off, Pan wasn't a god. He was just a satyr. No. He was uh, right. you know, a, a mythical, magical creature. But yep. he does represent, you know, hedonism and wild abandon yeah. and, and, you know, sexual desire. And that's what he... It, it, it's a sort of disturbing message in this because uh, Angela Librarian here is basically tweaked a number of times for being too uptight and she should just... Basically, she should smile more. Yeah, and she should get it on, because apparently yeah. that's the lesson she learned. I got to say, the way they portray Pan felt pretty accurate, because as soon as mm. she walks in, he is all, he doesn't speak. He's nope. jumping around her shirtless. You know, we don't see him jumping with his goat legs, but we see them later with his pipes. And she is getting all hot and bothered, like literally opening a few buttons and sweating. And he is just. I mean, that's what you you think would happen. Yeah. I mean, it's just we don't see the next step, which is what always happens in the Greek myths. Yeah. Um, that one I thought was actually very accurate as far as those things go. Yeah. Uh, Leah did. What's with the Muppet Show? <laughs> I didn't get that it, at all. That's a very strange one. The, 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 the attractions in the circus are, well, they vary very much both in quality and in the portrayal. <laughs> Yeah. The, one of them is the serpent. It's a, supposed to be a big snake. It is very clearly, you know, Cecil the Sea Six Sea Serpent, <laughs> with uh, the the face of Clint Stark, and which doesn't some... make him go running from the tent. <laughs> yeah, he Clint is remarkably calm about this talking snake that looks like him, that knows his name, knows what he's doing. That's the other thing. These town people are remarkably jaded. It's like, oh look, yeah. one of those just turned to stone. Yeah. Huh. Well, she no one starts that. going, let's bur- burn the witch. <laughs> <laughs> we will cleanse this tent with fire. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the yeah. snake is very odd. And I, I, there's some sort of implication that it is the original serpent from the book of uh, Genesis. Which apparently had a mustache. Did you know that? <laughs> yes, I did. It's right there. Oh. It's in Genesis chapter two, Jackson five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't dispute me. One, two, three. Easy as you and me. Um, yeah, I, I think what, what's supposed to be happening is that this is supposed to be a morality play. Like, the idea is that this town is all screwed up. Although, all things considered, the only thing really screwed up is the fact that these people are basically willing to take a bunch of money for their homes and then leave and live somewhere else. Yeah, there are and, a couple of people who are pretty screwed up. You know, Mrs. Cassian, who, you know, holding on to her, desperately holding on to her youth and... Uh, not acknowledging her her own change, which, and uh, what what's her name, Mrs. Lindquist, who's you know mean, yeah, but apparently to cure someone of being mean, they just have to look upon the Medusa, be transformed to stone, and then changed back by Merlin the magician. 
Oh, yeah, Merlin, the magician. And I got to say, hey, old age makeup is something that generally does not work. It generally looks terrible. And I'm looking at even some more recent stuff like the X-Files. There was an yeah. X-Files episode I rewatched recently, and there's a poor uh, Mulder turned old, and it was just like, did you walk into a cake? What, <laughs> what the hell happened? And here... It's action, and I can see why they gave him an Academy Award. The the, the makeup in this film is actually mm. pretty good. Yeah. Um, Tony Randall looks reasonably like an old Tony Randall. He doesn't look like somebody who doesn't know what old people look like. Um, now, that being said, Tony Randall's ability to play an old man is probably the best of the seven parts, quite honestly. <laughs> I don't know. I liked, it. I liked his version of Apollonius. The most depressing character in the entire the film. Apollonius of Tyana, also known as Captain Bringdown. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, this guy, he plays a fortune teller. And the problem is, and I remember this from a Terry Pratchett uh, novel, smart fortune tellers don't tell people what's actually going to happen. They tell them what they want to hear. Right. And Apollonius in this, and this is, Apollonius of Tyana, by the way, is a real figure. Oh. He was a Neopythagorean philosopher out of Turkey around oh. a hun- between like 60 and 100 AD. Hmm. And supposedly he could work miracles. Hmm. They, I don't think he was blind, and I, I don't think he could uh, see the future. But in th- this version of him, yeah, all he does is tell people exactly what's going to happen, no matter, and it's always grim and depressing. And, by the way, he's clearly working with Lucy Van Pelt, because his big line is always, five cents, please. <laughs> I'm surprised it doesn't have a little sign saying the philosopher is in. Yeah. And the thing is, is that the, he mostly just meets with the old lady who who thinks that everybody is still interested in her. And uh, her husband died. It turned out he didn't die. He actually left her. But she tells everyone that he died because she, you know, um, he basically just rips her a new one calmly and sadly to make it even worse. It's like. No, you will never love again. You will never remarry. You will die and no one will remember you. And it's just like, oh my God. Yeesh. And the saddest thing is that we see at the end of the film that she's learned nothing. She just no. like continues to do these these lies to the rest of the town and herself. So it's like double. Do- I, and I was just like, why do we have this amazing dip in the emotional content of this film? Um, but there it is. I guess that's a thing. Um what else we have? We have it was the Medusa shows up and is like, look in the mirror. And of course, the nasty old lady with the Swedish husband, which strangely seems to kind of be a trope for Westerns. Like for some yeah. reason, there tends to be a Swede there. Yeah. Oh, my dear. You should well, come with were. us to the circus. You remember a lot of the immigrants from from Scandinavian countries. They didn't all stop in Wisconsin and Minnesota. <laughs> Most of them a lot did. of them did. But <laughs> some of them went to the went southwest because it's like. Vlad, are you crazy? This place has winters as bad as the place we left. I'm not sticking around here. <laughs> yes, Oli, you are Sven. Yeah, yeah Oli. Uh, yeah, th- th- that is a trope, especially in like John Ford westerns. And the character is almost always called Swede. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And apparently, it, he has, I think, one of the best lines. He has just watched his wife be turned into a living statue by Medusa. And his response is, it's an arthritis attack. She's had these before. <laughs> like, excuse Catch me? Catch me? <laughs> My God, that's a terrible case of arthritis if it turns you into granite. Yeah, he must really, um, really look forward to those little episodes. 
Because she's, she, it's the typical, you know, hand-pecked husband thing. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Um, whatever. But, you know, the whole point of this film, I guess, is, again, we're, so, we're supposed to look at this morality. People are supposed to hear truths that they would, or see things in ways they wouldn't otherwise see. Um, they're just sort of poorly done. And, of course, it's all done under the ring leadership of Dr. Lau, Dr. Lu, or Dr. Lo, because even Loa. he, <laughs> even he Dr. said Lu-ow. it all I don't know. And yeah. here we have, I want to say the second most offensive Asian portrayal I can think of. And I still think the first one is Mickey Rooney in Breakfast ooh, at Tiffany's. Oh, ooh, yeah. Because that Ouch. one's more aggressive. Yeah. He's got the teeth in, he's got the glasses, and he's like screaming horrible stereotypal, stereotypical things at you about being Japanese. It's so awful. I mean, I don't like the movie anyway, but that part of, and that was one of the films we we were going to do. But the thing is, is that his part in the film is so small Mm. that while it's not only whitewashing and it is offensive, it just didn't feel like there was as much to talk about. Dr. Lowe is actually loud. He's the main character. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And he starts off with the little sing-songy pigeon English thing, and then it goes away, and then it comes back. For reasons I don't see are particularly clear, Max is wondering if they're not an attempt to address people's expectations. I wish they had done that. Like, I wish they had, like, played with the idea that people think they know something about another culture and then realize they know literally nothing about it. The problem is the inconsistency. I thought it would have been interesting if, say, he talks to all the grown-ups in that uh, pidgin English, but he talks to the kid, uh, like Tony Randall, and, well, and then he goes but, back. Yeah, he switches back and forth with the kid, and he sometimes to the other people he talk he talks that way, and sometimes he suddenly starts he suddenly has a New York accent. Like, yeah. Hurry, hurry, hurry! Step right up to the circus of Doctor Lau. It's very odd, and it, it yeah. doesn't make. They could have done something interesting with it, but they didn't. No, no, they they just preferred to let us deal with the the usual. Well, because, you know, they're Chinese people, they don't count, so they can make fun of them any way they want. Yeah, and, and is... he's he plays like all of the stereotypes. He's real wearing the coolie hat. Yeah. He does. He has the uh, pigeon English, but he's also the wise mystic. Yeah. You know, yeah, he does... what a, the, the magical foreigner. Trope. Yes, he's the magical foreigner, because we don't know anything about him, except he claims to be over 7,000 years old. He doesn't right. really have... He has a bunch of uh, tricks and sort of quirks he doesn't have really a personality no he just he's just that mysterious character that can do anything except when he suddenly can't like this so one of the 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 plots waiting to happen um the the gun in the drawer the sword in the chest the pee in the stone whatever uh (laughs) that's how it goes (laughs) no no like the vegetable oh Um, oh. (laughs) where your mind went get a mummy um (laughs) There's this goldfish, this poor, poor, I guess it's like a small catfish or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, it's meant to be color. So, you know, it's like, oh, I wonder what that goldfish or that catfish in the bowl is for. Um, it's like the watermelon in the press. Um, I'll tell you later. And eventually he tells people, oh, no, that's the Loch Ness Monster. And that's when he does his really bad Scots imitation. Yeah. Um, and as long as it's underwater, it's fine. But if it ever comes out, oh, no. So, of course, we're waiting and uh, to happen. don't you love his scientific explanation where he yeah, compares the, it to a blowfish? 
Yeah. Because you see, the blowfish lives at very great depths. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and when it comes up to the surface, the pressure's off, so it expands. No, it doesn't. Yes, that is, in fact, not how blowfish work <laughs> at all. No. Uh, but this is like, oh, when it's in the water, it's small. You know, like it is in Loch Ness uh, something. Yep. And, of course, a couple of Stark's henchmen get drunk and knock the thing over. Right. And that's when the stop-motion animation goes nuts. And then, well, of course, while it's turning into the Loch Ness Monster, these sort of atonal bagpipe riffs go off. Yeah. Just get it, huh? Because it's supposed to be from Scotland. Sure. And we don't even know why he carries it, because he says he caught it, so it wasn't like he was doing anybody a favor, but he caught it, and it's not part of the show. It's just on his gold-painted donkey. And you gotta squint real hard to see that gold paint, because it's not real obvious, and it's not well done. No. And I don't know why we need a gold donkey anyway, but there you go. But yeah, and then the kids, there's this big sand, sandstorm. Sand. <laughs> there's a big sandstorm at the end, except for the the, the kid who wants to run away with the circus because that's not a thing um, is there. And so he witnesses the Loch Ness monster. Although when the Loch Ness monster shows up, the sandstorm goes away, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then Dr. Lowe is sleeping. So like he can do anything except he actually sleeps and misses the fact that somebody's in his tent taking wrecking things and taking his Loch Ness monster. Um, but luckily he has the, this, this machine that makes um, really bad uh, um, firework effects and then causes rain. Yeah, and luckily, Doctor Lau's patented rain-making machine. Yeah, and luckily the the pressure of the water. <laughs> yeah, apparently, if you get the Loch Ness monster wet, it turns back into a fish. Sure, because that's a thing. I guess yeah. it's so we can have some actual conflict at the end or something. Uh, I don't know. But the kid, like, he wants to run away. He He's obviously missing a father figure. And uh, even though it looks like Ed and Angela are going to get together, he wants to run away and learn to do tricks with, with Dr. Lau. Um, and Dr. Lau basically says, Go away, kid, you bother me. Uh, in, in the worst W.C. Fields impersonation mm. ever. Mine, not not his. Yeah, and at the end, you know, Dr. Lau's riding away and the kid's running running after him trying to demonstrate how he can juggle because Dr. Lau left behind three golden balls for him. Oh, so he's going to be a pawnbroker. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and he's juggling, going, see, what, see, I can do it. Which is obviously supposed to be their version of, come back, Shane. Mother wants you, wants you. It was actually kind of sad. It was like the first point that that kid actor actually put some emotion into it. Mm. And it was actually kind of sad because it's like, A, he doesn't want to stay with his mom, even though it looks like she's going to marry the guy that the kid wanted her to marry and that the mother-in-law wanted her to marry. But he's just like everything, his whole life is nothing if he can't go with Dr. Lau. Mm. And he's crying and he's like, look at watch me, watch me. And Dr. Lau just disappears into a uh, a little hole in the, or some smoke. A, and then we get a, that quote. A, a badly filmed dissolve, basically, yeah. Yeah. And then By the way, did you quote. notice, in fact, that's the same shot as when he entered? He's just facing the different, the, even the shadows are laid out. So it's clearly, it's clear they shot, okay, Tony, ride the mule toward us. Cut. Turn around, ride the mule away from us. Yeah. Or at least they didn't like just, you know, use a reverse, like yeah. they didn't wind the film backwards. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, the whole morality play thing, I, I get the idea. Um, and we all know that they have uh, Hollywood and or uh, TV has spent a lot of money and time 
making series out of these things because this wasn't entirely unlike Fantasy Island of the Old West. <laughs> I kind guess of. he's Mr. <laughs> Mr. Lork. Uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, the, the finale of the circus is so strange. The show goes for two nights. The first night they all go and see all the weird creatures, the Medusa and uh, Apollonius and those guys. Oh, I love them when they used to back up Prince. They were great. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and then they come back for the second night, which is a parade of Tony Rand. I mean, a parade of the characters. <laughs> yeah. And then nope. basically a hologram where he yeah. summons an image out of thin air. And they're basically watching a movie within a movie of the fall of this town. I don't know. Wunder- Wunderfeld or Wundergalt. They made it up. I looked up. That was not a real story. Yeah. And... It's this incredibly heavy-handed allegory of a town that had everything it needed, and someone came along and told them, no, you need more, and God killed them. Yeah. That's the... Folks, if you sell your sell out to Clint Stark, you'll die! <laughs> it's like, and, you, and a flood will come, and your ton will be totally It'll, washed away. There'll be no memory of it. There'll, there'll be, be nothing. lava and volcanoes, yeah. even though there are none nearby, but there'll be lava, and <laughs> you're all going to die. Yeah. Like, um, geez, man, that's, that's a little harsh. I thought it'd be more like, well, you'll live somewhere else. Yeah. I, it's, yeah. I, I, the yet, whole idea is that you don't realize you're happy, but you're happy. And then Dr. Lau casts a mass teleport spell and gets everyone back to the library where they vote not to sell to Mr. Stark. And the only thing people do when they realize they're in the library is go, huh. Oh, yeah, n- oh, people weird. are remarkably sanguine <laughs> about talking snakes, genuine gorgons, people who can clearly eat, at least predict, read your mind and figure out who you are and predict the future, and Merlin, who actually makes real plants grow on stage. Yeah, from They're, nothing. What a jaded town. They're all a bunch of New Yorkers, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Nothing impresses them. It must be the lost borough. <laughs> yes, the sixth borough. Wait, the gold donkey borough? See for Catwoman. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, you had to go there. Yes. Well, this week, I'm afraid you're fired. Oh, well, have some bumpy. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's, besides the racism, which we're, we're it's, it's kind of weird because it almost feels like it's n- not racism when yeah. he plays it not Chinese. It's like he's only doing it because that's what the town expects, I guess. But it still is. And I don't know if hiring an Asian actor would have helped. Um, I mean, if, well, all right, he's the wrong, wrong uh, country, but if they had George Decay, for example, would it have made it any better? I don't think so. No. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, uh, it's clearly, it's a fantasy. We're supposed to be impressed by the makeup and the special effects. Yeah. And for the time, um, as you say, the makeup is really good. Yeah. I think all of the, okay, the, the uh, Medusa's a little over the top, but what do you expect? Yeah. But the others are actually pretty well done. Yeah. And, you know, I generally like George Pell films. He was one of my favorites. He did When Worlds Collide. He did The Time Machine. He did War of the Worlds. And those are films that I used to eat up and watch over and over again. I just adore those. So I still like them. Uh, when Worlds Collide isn't my favorite, but Time Machine and, and War of the Worlds I've seen many, many times. And this feels like a George Pell film. 
but it also does help explain why he wouldn't make another film for four years. Um, I, I'm done my notes. How about you, Max? Do you want to uh, get to the roundup? Um, I do want to point out, I don't understand why uh, Clint Stark calls uh, Dr. Lau a faker at the end. I mean, he's doing it. He's trying to be nice. I think we owe it all to this Chinese faker. He's seen him do real magic. Yeah. He's seen him. I mean, hell, this isn't all illusion or hypnosis. Dr. Lau paralyzes people. He teleports people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think these people are either in, in unbelievable levels of denial or it's a lost Hogwarts colony. <laughs> sure. The famous fifth, wait, seventh house of. Yeah, whatever. something or other. Yeah, Abalone. That's other, my house. Abalone. Ab- Abalone. <laughs> ah, yeah, well, no, I, I think that's otherwise that that's uh, pr- pretty much uh, all I've got. Let's let them in on the surprise. The roundup. So, Max. Yeah. I I don't remember this one showing up much when I was a kid. But you, had you seen this before or heard of it before? I'd seen pieces of it because they used to show it on the local UHF station occasionally. Yeah. And I'd come in. I remember the one sequence I remember is. And that's why it was so confusing, because that's where I came in, was Dr. Lowe sitting and doing the speech of, uh, you know, when you see a handful of dust, you see not, not simply dirt, but wonder and miracles. You are a part of the circus of Dr. Lowe. And the kid goes, I don't understand. And he goes, neither do I, and jumps up and literally <laughs> dances a jig. Yeah. And I just remember looking at that and going, what the hell is this? <laughs> So, no, I hadn't seen the whole movie. And your uh, reaction to the whole movie? You know, it it's funny. It could have been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I think it could have been a lot better. Never mind the, the glaring problem of of the yellow face uh, actor. Tony Lander? Yeah, Tony Lander. If they, I don't know. They could have gotten, you know, I don't know, Jack Sue or Mako or somebody. Key Luke. Yeah. They, there were plenty of Asian actors in Hollywood in the 60s. Sure. I, I can't really say I'd see Bruce Lee doing it, although I would love to. Can you imagine Bruce <laughs> Lee playing Dr. Lau? The Circus of Dr. Lee? Yeah. That would have been awesome. Wow. Totally, totally. different movie, but awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, a, a, apart from that, it doesn't hang together. No. The internal logic is all over the place. Uh we don't care as much about the characters as we're supposed to. No. The ro- the romance feels really forced. Well, I, honestly, when he, I, when he forces himself on her in, in effect, the beginning of the film, it's like, oh, that never gets old. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know he's supposed to be charming and persistent or in 1960, whatever it was, but uh, it really just comes off as kind of sexual harassment and stalkerism. Mm. But uh, I, I like the way some of it looks. I don't think it's a complete train wreck. It just doesn't work. Hmm. What about you? Mm. Uh, Same thing. You know, I was disappointed because it's a George Pal film and I like his approach to, I guess fantasy isn't really the right word for his other films. It is for this one. But that sort of, he's got this, this flavor and it is, it's time has passed because most of his films were 50s and 60s, and you can't really get away with the things that you could do then because we don't the special effects and stuff don't really work. But he, he has an approach to these films and to these fantastic ideas that I generally like. I would say that, if anything, this felt like a first draft of a script. 
Yeah. Because there's some good ideas here. And let's face it, Fantasy Island, week <laughs> after week after week, was this. It was people come and they think they want something, only to find out through Mr. Rourke's machinations that what they really want was love. Oh, wait, no, that's the love boat. Or um, Hervé Villachez. Or Hervé you're playing, you're playing. Um, and somehow that didn't get old, although admittedly, what else were you going to watch at 10 o'clock on a uh, Saturday night? Yeah. So there could have been, like if the town had been sad, like if people were unhappy mm. in various ways, as opposed to, I think I'll sell my house to this rich guy. I mean, that's not really a lot of Yeah, we don't there. see a lot of evidence that the town is particularly miserable. We don't see it's particularly happy either. No. It's supposed to be. It's just sort of there. Yeah. Like, everybody in town hates the kid. He apparently is the one newspaper boy in town, although why that town needs a newspaper, I don't know. And yeah. he literally finds the worst places to throw every newspaper. Um, All I could think is when he's riding his bike and throwing that, I'm thinking, it's a fine life, <laughs> carrying the banner. You know, newsies. Leaves a deep, deep scar. Um... So I think what we needed to see was we needed to see a town maybe that had been happy and now th maybe the railroad had in fact moved or was going to go away. You know, it was supposed to come here and it didn't because that happened a lot in Western mm. towns, towns that were supposed to be like, oh, this is the place to live. And then the railroad, for whatever reason, changes its route and ends up never going near that town and it slowly dies. Maybe if we had seen that. If we had seen people with actual problems, quite honestly, what Apollonius does to that poor old lady, that's just mean. It's like, yeah. yes, you will die alone, unloved, and unremembered. It's like, ah, maybe I'll yeah. just go now. Tomorrow will be like today, and the day after that will be like the day before. Yeah, on and it's... on when you die and will be buried. <laughs> like, well, You're... thank you, Professor Positive. Your bones won't even nourish the coyote. It's like, so... it's, it's, it's that bad. The, one, the but... thing is that... They could have done more with it because uh, when Dr. Lowe is showing them the fate of that uh, mythical city, he points out they had everything they needed. They were perfectly happy and content until someone come, came along and told them that they weren't. Except for water. We don't see enough of a parallel with, of that with no. the town. It's just sort of there. We don't see that, oh, look, you know, people are having a good, some play, people are having a good time and uh, uh, they don't just live through sandstorms. It's, you know, not a bad place to live. Yeah, and they could have done something with the idea that people don't understand culture. So Dr. Lau, instead of being some sort of weird mystic something, could instead have been somebody who just comes from the outside and goes, look, I have a different perspective from you because I'm not from this town. You're expecting me to be something and you find out that I'm not anything that you think I am. And I come to your town expecting something and you think it's one thing and I'm seeing a totally different thing. And there could have been a cool morality play. It could even have had the fantasy aspects of it. That's fine. Although that's problematic to say the least. But it's just kind of, it never really gels in any one particular area. There has to be this romance, because of course it does. And it's so painfully exactly the same thing yeah. as a music man. Um, that it never really, you never, never really care. Mm, it doesn't gel bad. at all. So we get racism, we get a little bit of misogyny in, in Ed Cunningham forcing himself on Angela the Librarian. Uh, and we get Dr. Lau Lo Lu. <laughs> Lou, Lou, um, <laughs> Doctor Lee Lou. So yeah, I, I at least I don't I don't feel as much of a mean spirit as I did in some of the stuff we've seen, mm. but it's just still like oh we can we can dress people up as other the, cultures because the they're not way, here. To... 
the other thing is the way the mood changes. Not just with Apollonius, who's you know depressing. Merlin, yeah. when everything else, a lot of the rest of this is supposed to be lighthearted and funny or strange, Merlin is really sad. Yeah. Because this is supposed to be the real Merlin. He's supposed to be over a thousand years old. He's the greatest wizard ever, and he's this broken down, tired, forgetful old man who's very clearly hitting dementia. Yeah. And just needs this little boy to tell him, I think you're a great wizard. And he's crying as he's hugging the kid. Yeah. Also a little <laughs> awkward, the old man alone on the stage hu- hugging this little boy. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But it's pitiful. Yeah. It's so sad. And it doesn't fit the rest of the movie. No. Certainly not the rest of the circus. No, it does not. But, well, so that's the seven fake faces of Dr. Somebody. Take You can pronounce it any way you want. The seven cabinets of Dr. Caligari. Yep. Seven faces of Dr. Oh no, Apollonius, no! Don't tell me my future, no! Seven faces of Dr. Smith. All right. The, the seven green gables of Dr. Lau, yes. Yeah, so we uh, we had that poll question that I brought in, mm. which was the uh, question of who is the most famous person you yourself have, after, uh, to be fair, actor, uh, famous actor that you have ever met yourself, actually talked to, not just saw across the street or something like that. Let us know, and you can do that through the usual ways, which include email, email at us at maxmikemovies.com. Big extra bumpy buck to Lauren for using our email address. Way to go, Lauren. That, of course, uh, gives you the idea that we probably have a website, which we do, maxmikemovies.com, where all of our previous episodes are available to you for 50 bumpy bucks an episode, Uh, (laughs) or less. You can find us on social media, such as Twitter and Facebook, and by such as, I mean only, uh, and that would be as MaxMikeMovies, or MongrelMikeMovies, if you're paying attention, because remember, that is my name. Call me Mongrel. Or, at the very least, you can find us on the podcast app of your choice and probably some that are not your choice but uh max ask me what we're watching next week (laughs) well i mean we've seen some pretty offensive uh portrayals of uh white people playing asian people i'm sure there can't be any worse than uh, what we've seen right right well oh dear what are we watching instead of so we've mentioned this when it's popped up. Um, not uh, most recently, actually, we mentioned it briefly in this episode. But I kind of felt, although I've never seen the film itself, I kind of felt a responsibility to actually push forth to remind people or to let people know about the actual winner of the oh, Golden dear. Turkey Award for most most ludicrous uh, impersonation in Hollywood history, and that would be by a Doctor. Marlon Brando. Doctor? <laughs> eh, I'm sure somewhere. Marlon Brando, who in some points is a brilliant actor. Yep. And then other points start in a movie called Tea House of the August Moon. Ooh. Um, yeah, so good, it's only available on YouTube. <laughs> um, and there he plays an Okinawan man who I am sure doesn't at all squint his eyes and say things like no ticky, no shirty. And actually, I think he kind of does oh yeah so um we do this so you don't have to yeah so finishing up our series on whitewashing next week won't you join us for some tea house in the august moon
This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Thank you.